Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. It's my pleasure to be here, and as um, Pete said, you'll pick up my um, Salt Lake City, Utah accent. Um, not really. <laughs> some people think I'm South African, some people think I'm from New Zealand, um, but I'm actually a Brit. I lived in Portland, Oregon for 14 years, and then, yeah, I get some shout outs for Portland, get it? And then I uh, moved five years ago, and I've been living for five years in Salt Lake City. Quite the contrast, not gonna lie. Um, it's been good though, lots of things worth learning. I'm in different cultures and different settings, and the people who are of the LDS church um, have taught me a lot about benevolence and goodness um, and showing up to be neighborly. And so I'm thankful to have had the opportunity every day on my way to work, I drive past the LDS temple. Um, so many things that I've been able to encounter in that city that is Salt Lake. Um, one thing that I love the most or that I value the most are practices. And practices that allow us to attune to um, wholeness. Ways that we can move towards life or to, uh, towards wholeness. And there may be practices that you do in your everyday that allow you or make you feel like you're moving towards wholeness through doing them. Salt Lake is also an outdoor culture, so I'm sure there's many of you that get on your bikes or on your skis or walk. And then there's other practices that maybe are more traditional that we do and we open up the text and we attune and attend to it. When we pray with one another or when you show up in a house churches, these are things that we would call practices that move us to ways of being whole and finding life. And today I'm gonna talk about a practice called lament. It's not always people's favorite practice, I'll just say that. And the way that I would define lament is um, it's a, an expression of deep emotion. And some of you in the room are like, oh no, a deep emotion. Like to keep away from those as much as possible. Um, well, you're in good company because I'm English. <laughs> yeah, the term stiff upper lip, you know where that comes from, right? Silence is actually a virtue for many and particularly for those of us who are in the UK. So if you have some feels, it's best to be silent about them because that's virtuous. To be fair, I bet most of you have seen um, Keep Calm and Carry On. I mean, it was really like hip for a while there. I think it's kind of seen its day, but you saw lots of things that was like Keep Calm and Carry On. And, 1939, that was the British government's way of um, communicating to the British public before mass air raids. Right? Just keep calm and carry on, people. No lament necessary. Um, and as you heard, this lovely reader today, she, wrote, she read from Psalm 60, and in the same way that these posters went all around the UK, keep calm and carry on, Psalm 60 is reflective of a very historic moment in the life of Israel. 
At the beginning of the psalm, which you didn't hear, but if you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm um, chapter 60, and there's a, there's a beginning, like a forward, and it says, to the choir master, according to the Edith, a matkim of David, for instruction when he strove, and when Joab, on his return, struck down the 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So there's an indication for us there in the text that this is um, in a very historic moment um, that Israel is living in. And it's David. David is the king at that time. And it's a high moment, as we know in their history. David is kind of this pinnacle king, this king that everyone looks to as the one that was good and that was righteous and did all that was good for his people. And David and Joab in this moment are striving. If you read the historical books, you notice that they have a victory in this moment. But the narrative is different than what is spoken of here in Psalm chapter 60. This psalm gives us a whole other angle on the entire event. How the people are feeling. When we read again, or as you heard it, you'll hear what it is that they were feeling. They were afraid. And they were anxious. They were living in uncertainty, and in that uncertainty, there was dissonance that they were feeling. And they were not afraid to express it. These Psalms would have been read publicly, and similar to today, as you read out together with one voice, that's what these Psalms would have been done in their, amidst their people. And so Israel have been told that God is with them and leading them, But in the face of fear, when things are uncertain, what do they think? What do they say to God? What do they say to each other? And as a pastor, I get the privilege of listening to a lot of different people's stories and moments that people live in their own lives. And when things feel disrupted and uncertain and painful and unknown, I end up sitting with people in a lot of fear and a lot of sadness. And I venture to say that if I were to come and sit alongside many of you, there would be similar kinds of feelings. That there is uncertainty that you feel or sadness that you're experiencing or pain that you're going through or anger that is deep. And if I weren't sitting next to you, perhaps I would be sitting next to a family member or somebody that you work with or go to school with. And there would be similar kinds of feelings. And what do we do? What do we feel and think and say to each other and to God in moments when we experience pain and uncertainty and when there is more dissonance than there is rest and reconciliation. And that's where we have this practice called lament. And lament is all over the Bible. It's not just this psalm, but lament is all over the text and it's a way to sit with confusing and unknown things, to sit with those things. And we can actually be afraid to sit with those things because perhaps that pain will hold on to us and never let go. That's the fear. 
If we attune to those things, what if that thing actually takes a hold of us, that pain, that uncertainty, and it just takes a hold of us in such a way that it will never let go? And so a lot of times, instead of attuning, it becomes easier to do other kinds of practices than lament. It becomes easier to problem solve pain or uncertainty or look for solutions. Well, if you just did this, then, or if I had done that, then, this would have happened. We move everything up into our mind and we try to create categories that make sense of something that literally cannot be made sense of. And we come, become the problem solvers or solution makers for pain because that's easier than attuning. Or we put a positive spin on it. Well, all things work out for good. There's some kind of purpose in this. And I think, to be fair, Christians might be the ones that do this the most, which is problematic. Putting a positive spin on something in order to get out of the fact that it's uncomfortable. Or we cope, which is not always a bad thing. But sometimes coping is a way of trying to get out of it, so we look for a way out, and in doing so, we end up lacking the attunement that we need. A friend that I work with closely, he lost his father when he was a young child. And he tells this story, so um, he would be fine with me telling it, and he says that he got tired of being the sad kid. And he also got tired of being the weird kid. Because he said, you know, he'd show up at these things and it'd be Father's Day and he'd be the kid that didn't have any, like, the note to write to his dad on Father's Day. Or there was the parent teacher and he was like the weird kid that didn't have the dad that came with him. And so he said, I decided to be the funny kid because the funny kid was way better than being the sad kid or the weird kid. And he said it wasn't altogether bad. It wasn't an altogether bad way to cope. But he said there's a lot of times that it left me lonely. Because he wasn't seen, he wasn't felt, he wasn't attuned to in the dissonance that he felt in losing a father. Which is why we need lament. Because it teaches us how to sit in unknown and confusing and painful things. And as we attune to this text, we see that these people, this nation of Israel, actually teach us what it means to be the people of God in hard spaces. To know and to expect God in those places. And so let's read again. Verses 1 to 5, now that you have some context for what is going on here in this text. Oh God, you have rejected us. Broken our defenses, you have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake, you have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. 
You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that has made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. It's kind of intense language, right? It's intense. If you've ever had coaching on good communication, sometimes you need that, you know, in the context of relationships or in a vocational moment, they give you some really good tips on um, what to do and what not to do. And there's two things that good coaching always says is you very rarely use the words like you and always. You always leave the dishes in the sink. You always... A late, right? You always get so irritated in that situation. And why are we coached away from that kind of language? Because it sounds like an accusation. Because that's exactly what it is. When you hear language like that, it feels to the hearer like an accusation. And that's exactly what these people are doing in this text. They're accusing God. They are accusing God of rejecting them, of leaving them in harm's way, and they are insisting that he do something about it. God, you have rejected us. You've broken down our defenses. You have left us vulnerable. You've been angry. There's an accusation there. And then there's an insistence that follows. Restore. You do something about it. Restore. Make things right. And then, God, you've opened the land. Everything's coming apart at the seams. You've done this. It's a mess. It's all broken. It's literally been torn apart. And then they insist, repair it. Heal the breaks. Bring stability. Secure this situation. And then, God, you have made us to see hard things. We are suffering hardship. And then the insistence, do something quickly. Come through for us, be our safe place, save us. They accuse God and then they insist that he do something. Wow. And do you know what? I think this is really, really helpful language for us. It's helpful language for us because in the face of fear and instability when things are falling apart or they feel fractured or unknown, what this text shows us is that space is given to voice pain and angst. There is plenty of space given to voice and name the pain and angst of it. I have a question for you. Do you give space to voice pain and angst and confusion? 
to God? Do you voice those things to God? Do you voice them to each other? Do you give space for other people to voice their pain and angst and confusion? Family members, people that you work with, do you give space for that? A couple of months back, I was at dinner. Lots of people invite me over for dinner, which I feel deeply grateful for. So I was over at this family's house. They have quite a few children. And around the table, one of the things that they like to do is when they have a guest is they give the kids the opportunity to ask different questions, which is so epic because kids literally have the best questions in the whole world. So if you've never had the opportunity to listen to a kid's question, which probably you all have, but seriously, most epic ever, So I'm sitting around this table and we're eating food and um, they all ask me their little questions. It was a few months ago now, I can't remember. It was definitely like, what's your favorite animal? And they were all surprised that it was a bird. Like, how can a bird be your favorite animal when there's things like tigers and lions and elephants? Favorite color, you know, we just went around and we all had this lovely conversation as they asked these questions. But their oldest daughter, she was at ballet class and so she came home later. I was sitting in the living room with their parents and the other kids had all gone downstairs to play and she came in and she ate her dinner later and um, she came to join us after she finished her dinner and then her dad said, we did our little question time, do you have something you want to ask Shalom? She's 12. And um, she sat there and she thought for just a minute and then she looked at me with like this really direct gaze and she's all... What is the hardest thing that you have ever experienced? And I was so, what? Hazel, uh, sorry, Shalom, could you ask me that again? She's like, yeah. What's the hardest thing that you've ever experienced? Now, literally, like, I take a deep breath and I'm like, am I going to say that out loud right now? What a question. It's like so vulnerable. And it requires a level of trust in order to speak that out into the air in company of others. And this, this psalm, this lament psalm, just like a question from a 12-year-old girl, gives permission. It says, voice it. Speak it. Let it out into the open. You don't have to hide. You don't have to run from that pain. You're invited. Speak it, name it, let it be. We really do need to move away from the false notion that the kind of language that names pain lacks faith and trust. Because we actually need faith and trust to be able to use language like that. It requires faith and trust because it requires a true understanding of who we are. That Jesus invites us into relatedness with him and then we belong. We belong. And nothing, nothing can separate us from that belonging. It says so in Romans chapter eight. 
And so in that relatedness, Jesus does not ask us to be passive. He wants us to show up with our whole selves to him, to speak out the things that reside within us. He wants an active relationship with us. And it requires faith and trust to be able to show up to him with our whole selves. And it also requires faith and trust because it requires us to trust who God says he is. That God is capable to relate to us at the deepest level. And so rather than fearing that our faith is weak or under some sort of false guilt that our rawness might somehow be wrong or hiding in the shame that what we're going through is unseeable, God wants us to enter into serious communion and conversation with him. And it is through that actual relatedness that relief has the capacity to happen. So where there is lament, there is not a lack of faith. There is courage. Where there is lament, there is not a lack of faith. There is courage. And so I'm going to ask you, if you were given space this morning to voice what is unknown in your life, what is confusing, what is painful, or what you see in the world around you that is confusing and painful and uncertain, because it just doesn't only have to be located in us, it is also located around us. What would you name? What would you give voice to? And you might, in your own mind, say, what's the point, Heather? It doesn't solve anything. No, you're right, it doesn't. It names it. Which is the practice of lament. And so I ask you again, what would be the thing that is uncertain in you or painful or confusing? Or what is the thing that you see in the world around you? Given the space, what would you name? What would be those human words that you would offer? We hear these human words in verses one to five and then God speaks, verses six to eight. And it says, God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. We've just heard these really human words and then we hear hear these words from God and you're like, come again? It's gonna give us these list of names here in the moment of our deepest grief. Not exactly what we were hoping for, God. It's a bit underwhelming on first glance, right? 
But basically, what is happening here is that we have this verbal map that is being communicated to us. And so if we were familiar with this terrain, similar to maybe many of you are familiar to um, the terrain of Oregon, it'd be a bit like um, God saying, like Portland to Klamath Falls, from Klamath Falls to Baker City or La Grande and to Newport. And suddenly, what do you have in your mind? Well, Portland up here in the north, right? Klamath Falls down here in the south. And over on the east, we've got Baker City and La Grande. Then over here on the west, Newport, a little beachy town. And suddenly we have this visual in our minds as God speaks, this map out. Shechem is the big city in Canaan, Succoth is south. Gilead and Manasseh are east, and then Ephraim and Judah are west. And that's the promised land. It's the place that Israel was sent and the place that Israel calls home. And the other names are places that feel like a threat to their homeland. And God declares that out of and in all of these places, he is going to dwell and act, that his presence is with them. And so this moment in the middle, as God speaks, what he's speaking is a sense of reassurance that I am with you. That you're not alone in this place that feels fragile and fearful and uncertain. God speaks and he says, I am with you. You are not alone. Don't be threatened. And it is deeply comforting to know that in these moments where we feel uncertainty and where, where we're afraid or where there's pain that we are not left alone. That is deeply reassuring. And God speaks in this moment and he says that he is with them. And that's the truth that even in our confusion and pain that God's presence is with us. And in Salt Lake City and at Missio, we talk about this a lot. And I know you have this table that you set too. We do it similarly. And it's this picture of God's presence with us. In Salt Lake, we have this table that runs down the middle of our gathering so that everybody can know that in the midst of whatever it is that we're experiencing as a people, like God is in the midst of us. He is present with us. You can count on that. If there's one thing you would leave today with is that you would know that God's presence goes with you. So we say that a lot at Missio. We have it visually demonstrated. And after a sermon, we kind of landed on that moment and a woman came up to me after with tears in her eyes and she's like, you know what, Heather? That doesn't feel like enough. I get it. I hear it. I believe it's true. And it doesn't feel like enough. His presence with me just doesn't feel like enough right now. And I was like, you are the best with your honesty and your realness. Because I think oftentimes we hear things like that, that God is in the control and like I believe that and I know that and so I just need to be good then. Need to suck it up and be good then. 
But that's not what it means to be human. Even if we believe that God is with us in those moments that create an enormous amount of confusion, it doesn't mean that we just need to be good then. While we might be able to say that he is in control, it doesn't mean that we don't get to lament the pain that we sit with or in. And it's okay to say that his presence with us just sometimes doesn't feel like enough. And the response to God's words in the psalm is a lot like that woman after the sermon. Verses 9 to 12. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. God says he's with them. He's in the land with them. He'll be with them. He's accompanying them for them not to feel the threat of the circumstances that they currently sit in. And then they say, who's going to take us to safety? Haven't you given up on us, God? We need help. This is their response to him. And then they say, with you is the only way through. If you don't come and aid us, we're lost, we're hopeless. And so they question his presence with them, even in the midst of God speaking and saying he's with them, they suddenly turn around and they question his presence with them. And yet they end on a statement that without God, there is no hope, that with him is the only way through. And so the ending here is a people who are holding on to both fear and faith at the same time, which is what is so refreshing about lament. Because there are situations that we find ourselves in that often have more questions in them than have clarity or resolution. Whether it's with a job that you have or with kids that are under your care or in relationships or the future or there's some kind of sickness that has taken a hold of you or a family member. Or there's some kind of financial um, situation that you're currently living a lot of the times those things have more questions in them than they have resolution. And then we look at a big picture and we look at things like injustice or racial inequity and there are more questions in those moments than there's often answers or resolution. And as we look to lament, we see that we're not asked to be dismissive but we're also asked to not be defeatist. So lament is not about being cynical. It's not about having defiance towards God. Lament is not criticism or cruelness or bitterness. That is not the quality to lament. Lament is an honest and truthful expression of sorrow, grief, fear, and pain. It's an honest protest that not all is right. So like I said, it's not defeatist, it's not about being cynical 
or critical or cruel or bitter towards God or towards others or even towards ourselves because sometimes in the moment of pain, the person that takes the most cruelness or bitterness at our own hands is ourselves. That's not the quality and the nature to lament. Lament is an honest and truthful expression of sorrow, grief, fear, and pain. It's an honest protest that not all is right. And in the biblical text, it usually lands on uncertainty with eyes fixed on God. And that's what's so uncomfortable about lament in the Bible because we naturally like to solve things and fix things and have it all tied up and making sense. But here in lament, we sit in hard places with things that don't make sense. And we show up before God with our whole selves. And it takes courage and it takes faith. And in our circumstances, our eyes are fixed on him. And in Jesus' hardest moments, he did that too. And we know it because we know the story of him being in a garden. He was troubled. There's only seven times in the gospel where it says that he was troubled. It means that he was so conflicted. And in his trouble, he got down on his knees before the one he knew loved him. And he said, if it's possible, with drips like blood coming out of his pores, take this cup from me. He lamented his own suffering. And that's what this table represents, is a God who understands suffering and lamented in his own way in a garden alone. And because he understands suffering, he doesn't ask us to be silent about ours. He asks us to show up wholeheartedly and to name the things that grieve us, the things that live within us, are located within us, and the things that are located in the world that we see around us. If we want to be a people that love justice and are merciful and are on mission, we must learn the vocabulary of lament because there are many things to lament in the world. And so we're gonna do something together. As you came in, you have these cards that you came in with, or that they were given to you with your bulletins. And on the back it says, use this card to write out your own lament. Name and give voice to realities in your life and world. You can write a poem, a prayer, a song, or even just a word. And so I'm gonna stand here for just a couple of minutes in silence and I'm gonna ask you, 
whether you're familiar with the practice of lament, whether you've only done it a couple of times or whether this is the first time in your life where you are willing to give voice to something that has been or is painful, I am going to be the 12-year-old little girl and invite you, give you permission to speak it and to name it. And you can hold on to that card. You don't have to show anyone if you don't want to. You can though, if there are people that you trust, perhaps after this service, you share that with them. Maybe your house church leader or a group that you get together with, you could have the courage to name it. Or after the service, I know that there are people in the back that would love to pray with you. And you can take that there or you can bring it to this table. And you don't have to put your name on it. You just place it at this table as a symbol that there is one whose name is Christ that sees your pain, enters into it with you, doesn't ask you to be silent or quiet about it, but wants to be with you in it. And so you can put it at this table as a picture that you acknowledge that he suffered and is not afraid to attune to the suffering that you are experiencing. So I'll give you a moment to do that. Give you a couple more seconds. It's okay if you didn't write anything down. It's okay if nothing came to mind. And if you did, I want you to know that in this text are the words of lament and in this text we understand this to be a holy text. Which is why on the front of these cards is written holy words. The words of your lament are holy words. They're worth speaking. 
They're worth knowing, they're worth sharing. And Christ invites these words out of us. So if you had them today, we hold them with you. Your holy words. If you didn't have them today, then remember. I pray that you'll remember that if there is a moment in your life where you experience pain or suffering, that you will know that the words that are within you are holy words and that you will always give yourself permission to name them. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are not um, unfamiliar with suffering, that you understand pain. Thank you that because of that, there is space for us. Thank you for this text that calls us into honesty, not in a way that is cruel or bitter or cynical, but in a way that gives ourselves permission to name the things that are dissonant within us. And in living in those spaces of doubt or uncertainty and pain, that is not a place where our faith is weak. It's not a place where we just can't figure out enough about your goodness to be able to live into it. But instead, that dissonant is an invitation. An invitation towards courage. A courage that would allow us to be seen and known by you, to wrestle with you, to be expectant of things that you will do, and to also to do that with your people. And so I pray uh, for the people of Antioch in Bend, Oregon, that they would become a people, if they're not already, who understand and live into the practice of lament, and that that would turn them into a people that can more deeply do the work of justice, and more consistently come alongside people as their neighbors in mission. And that they would be a community that attuned to each other as they attuned to you. And may they speak out holy words. And may they be willing to hold the holy words of others. Give them spirit, the capacity to do so. In Jesus' name. Amen.